0: Welcome to the Outpouring Orlando Sermon Podcast. The Outpouring is a vibrant, Christ-centered church in sunny Orlando, Florida. Thanks so much for tuning in, and we hope you enjoy today's message by Pastor John Daniels. Um, So we, just to give you um, a heads up, we started, uh, I think two weeks ago, sermon in in 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter, called Living on Mission, Living on Mission. Living on Mission is um, a part of our theme for the year, and it's a part of just the vision overall of our church. The vision of our church is to see people live on mission where they live, learn, work, in play, And so we desire not just to be a church that is attractional, but a church that is missional. What in the world are you talking about? Um, attractional meaning just come to see us. Come come to our church. Come see us. Come see us. But but that's fine. But our church is missional. We want people to come in and then be sent out into the world and to make the secular spaces sacred. And so we live on mission not by coming to church. Um, we we live on mission by being Christ's disciples in the world, being sought by in the world. And so 1 Peter is a book, just a brief overview. 1 Peter is a book about a group of believers who have been exiled. They are exiled not because um, of anything ethnically uh, or socially, but they've been exiled because of what they believe about God. So oftentimes we don't see ourselves as exiles, but the Bible has a different story. If you are a believer, you are actually living in exile. You live in the world, but you're not of the world. You have a different address. Your real address is not actually your address. Did you know that your actual address is in heaven? And so we live in this world that may at times we may not face persecution where we're threatened with death. Not at this point, not yet in the history of our country where we can't be persecuted or killed for what we believe. But it's not to say that it won't happen at some point. But it is to say that you may face oppression for being a believer at school. You may um, go in a classroom where a professor is hostile to Christianity. You may go on a job that is hostile to you as a believer. Um, And so you may find yourself in these places because you are in exile. And sometimes it'll feel like you're not from here. And Last week, we talked about it's a different world from where you come from. You should have been here. (laughs) And so this morning, we're going to do something that you're going to find a little weird. Um, so we're going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. If you've got a Bible, uh, you can open it up or you can follow along with us on the screen. 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse 22. And we're going to read all the way through chapter 2, ending at verse 3. Wait a minute. You can do that? Y- yes, you can do that. Remember, these are letters that were Written And you don't write your letters page one, page two. If you're writing a letter to a friend, you just write your letter. But the translators broke broke it up so that we can have chapters and verses. All right. And so we're going to read through because it's complete thought. So we're going to read from chapter one, uh, starting at verse 22. uh, First Peter chapter one, starting verse 22, all the way through the second chapter, verse three. And so here's what we're going to attempt to do that. The first service failed miserably at this morning. We're going to read together. Typically, 11 o'clock, you guys are okay readers, are, but this morning, 9 o'clock is good at reading too, but this morning, I don't know what happened. And so um, I'm going to need everybody to stay on task this morning, all right? And so we're going to read together with some conviction because we believe God's word, and so we're going to do it together, all right? Yeah. Ready? Read. <laughs> Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this awesome opportunity to be able to come and study your word together this morning, Father. I pray that you would meet us in a special way this morning. Lord, I pray that we will be actively engaged in what you are saying this morning, God. That although we are listening, Father, I pray um, that you would move us to respond to what we hear this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we need your help this morning. We need your help um, to help us to focus this morning. We live in a world of distraction. And so, Father, I pray that we can focus on you this morning with razor-sharp focus. Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts, but you would also encourage our hearts this morning. We pray that Jesus' name would be made great this morning. We pray that the gospel we be made beautiful this morning, Father. I pray, God, that you would create something in us, God, something new, God, a hunger and a thirst for you this morning. And so, Lord, we just thank you this morning for meeting us. We thank you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. My sermon title... This morning is living on mission, loving, and growing together. Living on mission, loving, and growing together. Last week we read that the Apostle Peter gave these exiles in Asia Minor three things that they needed to survive as exiles. And those three things that he gave them were three things that are pertinent for us today as believers in the world in which we live in. And the first thing that he told us that we absolutely needed to, to have if we were going to ex- uh, survive as exiles and, and if we were going to endure as the Lord called us to do, endure as believers is the first thing that we needed was we needed some hope. It, this world is going to be very hard and it'll be even harder if you don't have something to hope in. And I want you to understand something about hope. Biblical hope is not like the hope we have. The hope that we have on a day-to-day basis is more like wishing. You know, you say, I hope that I-4 is not jam-packed on my way to work. That's not hope, because that's not gonna happen. That's a wish. You're wishing that I-4 wouldn't be packed. I hope that I can get through UCF in four years. That ain't really hoping. That's a wish, because UCF, I don't know if it still stands for the same thing, but it stands for you can not finish in four years or less. And so. That's more like wishing. But when he calls us to hope, he doesn't call us to hope just in any old thing. He calls us to hope in God. And the hope that he calls us to is a hope that is certain. And here's why it's certain. It's certain because it's grounded in something that has already happened, that being the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I want to say this to you if this is your first time in church or if you're not very familiar with the story of Christianity. Everything is rooted and grounded in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus Is not raised from the dead, then we are still in our sins. And so we can place our hope in Christ, in God, because of something that has already happened. And so not only did we need hope last week, we needed holiness. We needed holiness. I made sure everyone last week wasn't scared of the word holy because it is impossible. And it sounds impossible because it is impossible, but our holiness is not holiness that we do in our own strength. It is gospel-driven holiness. And we're not holy just to be holy, but we are holy as exiles in the world because we represent Christ in the world and they won't know what his character is like if we don't show it to them. And so people need to see what God is like, but they see what God is like when they encounter you and I as believers. And so our holiness is not about us, but our holiness is actually about God. And the third thing we needed last week was we needed the fear of the Lord, not fear as in terror that something is going to happen to you, but a reverence for God, a respect for God, an honor for God. And that reverence that we have or that fear of the Lord that we have should supersede the fear that we have in the world because we have been made Exiles. And so those were the things that we needed to survive as exiles in the world individually. And so when we get to today's text, Peter shifts it from the individual to the community. And so we are exiles, but we are not exiles by ourselves. And the good thing about God is that when he saves a believer, he doesn't save them and leave them alone, but he saves us and brings us into a community called the church. And so I know we live in a day and time where the church has a bad name and the church has a bad rap. But I want to tell you this. There's only one institution in the world that God died for. And that was the church. The church is good. The church is healthy. The church is beneficial. I didn't say that the church was perfect because the church is the only uh, institution where the membership requirement is that you be a sinner. And so we are sinners, but we are saved by grace. And so you should love the church because God loves the church. You should love the church because he loves the church and he is a part of the church. And so if a person says that they are a Christian apart from community, then that's not Christianity. One pastor just recently said in an article that I read, he says Christ is a part of the church and Christ does not have out-of-body experiences. And so I know that you've been taught that I can do Christianity by myself. Well, let me tell you this. Your salvation, your sanctification is a community project. You need other people if you are going to grow in God. And so Peter here says that they've been purified by their obedience to the truth. And what he is saying is that they responded to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They responded to what they heard about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so their response, their obedience is speaking about their conversion as believers. And so what happens is when God saves us, God sets us apart. He sets us apart. Why does he set us apart? He sets us apart for himself. God doesn't just save us to save us, but God saves us so that he can use us for his glory. God didn't save you so that he can get on your agenda to help you accomplish all of your goals. God saved you so that you can get on his agenda and do what he's called you to do. And so he calls us to do this in community. And so when he says that they purified themselves, he's not saying that they saved themselves. He's not saying that they did this on their own. But their obedience to God, their response to the gospel was by God's grace. God allowed them to respond. So let me say this about a person when a person comes into a relationship with Lord Jesus in our obedience. When we, we hear the good news of the gospel, we read the Bible and, and we see something in. It. Wow. We learn more about God. But let me say this about your obedience. Your obedience is not just an intellectual experience. It actually should change who you are. It does something to you. And so when we just have head knowledge about God, we undermine the power of what we say we believe. When God saves you, he doesn't just save you and make you smarter. God saves you and changes your whole life. You are not just someone who has behavior modifications. You're not just someone who now has attitude adjustments, but he makes you an entirely new person. And so we are made new in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, our approach to God changes, but our approach to people should change as well. And some of us are very successful in one on one interactions with God, but we struggle with interactions with people. And so he is calling us into a community. So he makes this transition from individual to corporate implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news bears fruit, or it should bear fruit, in our relationship with other people, our faith in Christ brings us into a fellowship with God's people. And with that being said, there are some fundamental characteristics that should mark the community of believers, which we call the church, and none are more important than the two that I'm going to give you today. And the first thing that a church should have, the first characteristic of a church, what should a church look like? What should the characteristics of the people be? How should the people be at the church that I go to? They should be loving. They they should be loving. And so these two things that I want to present to you today are two things that the new birth in Christ, that your relationship with Christ should bring about and should be on full display in a church. And the first thing is, is that we should love each other earnestly. We should love each other earnestly. When God saved us, he gave us the capacity and the ability to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. Love is actually a result of our conversion. And so when I say love, what I mean is I don't mean warm and fuzzy feelings. Love is not I love you when we're getting along. Love is we got issues and I still love you. Anybody can love someone from a distance, but real love shows itself when you're up close and personal with a person. They get on your very last nerve that you don't even have any more nerves. And then you still make a decision to work past your issues and love them anyway. And so oftentimes what happens is people come into the church and they expect some fantastical experience that this should be like Disney movie. Like nothing should happen to me in church. My, my feelings should never be hurt in church. I should never get hurt in church. And so we have phrases now like church hurt. Now that's not to be insensitive if you've actually been hurt for real for real. But if you call church hurt, I had an idea and they didn't receive it church hurt, that's not church hurt. If you walk by somebody and they saw you and they didn't speak to you, That's not church hurt. That's called in your feelings. And so sometimes we identify something, well, that's why I don't do church because they're full of hypocrites. Well, come on and join us. There's more room for you. We're hypocrites who've been saved by grace. And so he calls us to love each other sincerely. He calls us to love each other constantly. It's a deep love that he calls us to. The literal translation means to stretch out, that we strive to love one another. And you know what that means? If I have to strive to love you, that means loving you probably ain't easy. And if you've been in church for longer than five minutes, when you got up out of your seat to greet somebody, somebody probably offended you. Somebody sitting in the seat that you had during praise and worship right now, you're mad at them. If you've been in church for longer than five minutes, you will get hurt or you will get your feelings hurt. But when God saves us, he puts a supernatural kind of love in us that is is able to look over somebody else's sins. He gives us this love that we should strive to to strive after our brothers and sisters, that we should run full speed after them. And so when we are saved by God, it produces a love in us, not arrogance, but it gives us a love that pursues love for one another. And so this is important for us if we are exiles and we are God's people in the world. Here's why I'll let Jesus tell you. Here's what he says in John 13, verses 34 through 35. I give you a new command, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The world should be impressed by the way the church loves each other. They should actually see that we don't backbite each other. They should actually see that we don't go fault finding for other people in the church. It should see, it should show that that we are people who cover each other and we pursue each other even when we have issues. So is that what the world sees when they come into church? Because if I'm coming out from the world where the world is hard and it's cold, why do I need to come to your church if I hear you talking about your sister in Christ? Why do I need to come to your church when every Monday you come to work and you tell me that you went to church this weekend? But I hear you talking bad about the people at your church. Why would I want to love your Jesus if it's not producing a love in you that is attractive to me? And so Jesus is implying that our love serves as a witness to the world. How we love each other matters. No matter what is going on on the outside, we should still be able to love one another. And here's the reason why we love. I want to read something to you from 1 John chapter 4, verses 19 through 21. Here's what he says. We love because he first loved us. So it shows us that our love is a response. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has, seen cannot love the God who he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother or his sister. Now we put that in the context of persecution. We should understand something that sometimes when things happen to us in this world, the first thing that we want to do is we want to blame God for it. This job is hard. God, get me out of it. And God doesn't respond. So now it becomes God's fault. But the problem is when you got beef with God, what are you going to do about it? to take a phrase from from a movie or somewhere, your arms are too short to box with God. So what happens is when we get offended and things happen to us because of our circumstances, if we can't take it out on God, we start taking it out on others. And so sometimes persecution can change the way we interact with other people. And so let me give you an example. You had a rough week at work. And so because you had a rough week at work, your disposition changes towards other people. Think about your attitude when everything is going well. When you first start the new job. Right. You know, you first got it because you hated your old job and now you got the new job. Right. And you're like, this is the best thing ever. And you show up to church on time. You're skipping and you're happy and you want to do anything and you love everybody. And your hugs are the best. And you want to get everybody some coffee. And you're willing to do whatever they ask you to do to serve. But then when six months have passed and the honeymoon phase is over or the, or the relationship is now six months on and you realize that they're not as perfect as you thought it was. You thought Boaz is now Bozo. And so. And now. I love everybody. Turns into good morning. Can you help us serve this morning? God didn't change. But you allowed the tightness of life to affect your posture how you interacted with other people. And what he's saying is the flames of persecution should not take away from the love that you have for your brothers and sisters. No matter what's going on in the outside, because your love is a response to something that has already happened, you should be able to push past that and love in community with other people. And so, it is rooted in something that God has already done. Our love is rooted in God's own demonstration of his love for us, and God's love for us wasn't cute, it wasn't clean, it wasn't easy, it was messy, it was filthy, and it was downright bloody because he demonstrated his love for us on the cross. Romans 5 and 8 tells us this, but God proves his own love for us that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you when you were at the worst. He did not wait for you to clean up your act. He did not wait for you to get your stuff together. But he reached down and came to where you were when you were at your worst. And he died for you while you were in your messed up condition. And so we respond to a God who loves us when we were not at our best. But we find it hard to love other people when they're not living up to our standards of perfection. When God loved you in your mess. And this is not to say you overlook every single thing and you don't deal with it wisely. But it is to say, if there are minor offenses and nobody died and no blood was shed, then we should be able to move forward. We should be able to talk like mature Christians, work out our issues and then move forward. We should be mature enough to say, you know what? I was wrong. What a novel idea. Hey, you said this to me and you hurt me. And you should be able to say, Tell me what I did. But oftentimes, before the explanation even comes, we got our guards up. Because how dare I could ever offend anybody? You offend God every second of the day. And so when someone comes and says, Hey, you know what? I didn't know I did that, I was unaware. But if that was your experience, I apologize. Can we move forward? I'm, I'm sorry, I, real, I realize what I, I acknowledge what I did and I'm willing to turn my behavior. This is an example, a, 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 an example of, of what love looks like, that we can move past issues, that we can talk it out like mature adults, but how does it look to a world when we can't work out our own small and minor grievances? And we undermine the message that we say that we believe. And so this love that he's given us doesn't just come from anywhere. It was born from somewhere. It it came from somewhere. And so Peter alludes to this and tells us what this is. In verses 23 through 25, for those of you that are following along with scripture, here's what it says in verses 23 through 25. He says, because you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was uh, proclaimed Came to you. And what it's saying is this, when we were born again, we were born of the seed. The word of God got on the inside of us and birthed new life in us. We responded to the proclamation of the good news, whether that was in church, somebody evangelized to you on the street, somebody told you about Jesus at school, your grandmother introduced you to Jesus. However it came about, you responded to a message about a Savior that came, suffered, and died and was raised to life on your behalf. You responded to this message and a seed was planted in you that gave birth to new life the same way in a human procreation, a seed is put somewhere and a person comes to life. The difference is with a human seed, it eventually dies. But with God's seed, it is eternal and it's imperishable and it's incorruptible and it lasts forever. And so the word of God that saves you, birth a life in you that will live forever because we live for eternity with God. So this is the word of God that is on the inside of us. God gave us new life by the seed of his word, by the seed of his word. That word produces a new life in us and it is contrasted with a life that ends at some point. So he makes this example about flesh is like grass. His glory is like a flower of the grass and the grass within the Withers and the flower falls, but this word endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Peter didn't just make this up. Peter didn't make this up. Peter gets this from the prophet Isaiah, who said the same thing in Isaiah chapter 40. He said this in verses 68 in Isaiah chapter 40, because he too was speaking to a people who were going through exile. They were exiled uh, by the Babylonians, and so they are in exile and they are tempted to forget because of their circumstances. They're tempted to think that God has forgotten about us. God has forgot about us. God doesn't hear from us. God hasn't responded yet. God hasn't got me out of this yet. I'm tired of this situation and it still hasn't changed. And so because of that, they were losing hope in God. Because of that, they were turning away from God. Their minds were closing to what he was saying and their faith was growing cold. And so Isaiah calls them on the carpet to let them know what you are experiencing has an expiration date on it. It will end at some point, but you hold on to the hope of the word that was planted on the inside of you because that will outlast the pain that you have in the present. And so Peter is telling the current exiles, and I think Peter is speaking to us today, that no matter what you face in the world and what you're going to, at some point it has to end. And God is true to his word. And he, just like he delivered them, God will eventually deliver you and I. But this word is what we put our hope in. That, that, that there is hope for you as a believer, that your hope in God, that the hope of the word will outlast your present pain, that it will not last forever, that the word of God will stand the test of time, that his promises are sure, that you can take what God said to the bank. It is good. It will happen. It will come to pass, but we have to put our hope in it. it. We have to trust and believe in what God has said. And oftentimes, when we're in pain, we're experiencing some sort of persecution, we're tempted to think, this thing is never gonna end. I want you to think for a moment, over the last five to ten years, can you think about situations where you said, this is never gonna end? I've been in this situation for far too long. Man, I. Is this relationship going to ever, ever end? Am I going to be stuck here forever? You ever been in a situation where you said, I don't think I'm going to be able to get out of this. And the truth of the matter is, you didn't. God did. And you are sitting here today as a testament to a God that brought you from a place that you were in. All of us have been in situations where we're like, ah, I think I jumped out the window this time. I went too far. But what he's saying is what you experience now pales into comparison to what is to come. That God is a faithful deliverer, that that God is just, that he's merciful, that that, that his promises are sure and that, that we can trust and believe in it. Your, your greatest pain and your greatest opposition is like a flower of the grass. You compare it to God's eternal word. And all Peter is saying to them is this too shall pass. At some point your pain will end. Maybe not in this life, but it will end in the life to come. So we have to put our hope in this and not get in prison to our temporary circumstances. Let us not be in prison to what we currently experience in this life. It gets better from here. We have to trust and believe that. And so because we have this hope, because we have this new birth in Christ and we now have this capacity to love sincerely and from a pure heart. Sometimes the persecution can allow us to grow cold and grow cold towards God and grow cold towards other. And so he has a second remedy for the community of believers. And I think this is very interesting and very pertinent for us as a church. So not only are we to love each other earnestly, the second thing is we should desire spiritual nourishment. I want to deal with desires for a second. Here's what it says in verses one through three of chapter two. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that you may grow up into your salvation if you have tasted that the Lord is good. So the first thing that he tells us to do is actually to get rid of some stuff. That as a Christian, there are some things that may come in my life or be germinating in my heart that I need to get rid of. And so he names a few things that I want to shed some light on and he tells us to take them off. It's almost like he's saying take them off like they're dirty garments. Put them away. Throw them on the floor. Put them in a hamper. Get rid of them because they're going to stop you from getting what you actually need. But I want to address what they are. The first thing he addresses is something called malice. You know what malice is? Malice is evil intent with the desire to injure or harm someone. Now when you think of malice, you tend to think of something that is physical, but malice, it can actually be something that is verbal. You can actually harm or injure somebody by something that you say. Because if you say something or imply about somebody's reputation, you are actually doing something malicious because you're trying to do damage to them. And so he's telling them to put away malice, put away deceit, which which means all dishonesty or all uh, in all words or deeds. Put away hypocrisy, inconsistency between what you say you believe and what you practice. And then he deals with something called envy. I want to stop here for a second, because I believe we live in a generation of envious people. You know what envy is? Envy is when I feel sick to my stomach when someone else has what I think I should have. And I think that social media has grown us into an envious group of people because every time we get on this thing, we see lives that we think that we want. She got the ring. Look at him on vacation again. How is that even possible? I know where he works. My job gave me 10 days. He's on his fourth vacation this year. I'm sick of it. I work hard. He says he works from home. What does that even mean? I should be on that vacation. Envy. I'm single. I've been trying to live for the Lord, and look at her. I know her. And look, he asked her, what am I over here, chopped liver? Oh, that makes me sick to my stomach. You know what we should start doing? We should pray before we get on social media. You should have some time with Jesus before you get on there. Lord, protect me from all envy. Lord, let me not be jealous before I get on here and scroll about these people's lives that's not even really reality. Lord, please let me not be envious of a relationship that I know nothing about, that I think I want, but you know better. Lord, 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 I'm praying right now, let me not covet somebody else's car because I don't know how far in debt they had to get to drive that car. Lord, Lord, help me. Lord, help me not be deceived by what I'm seeing, Lord. Please, please help me. She's on her sixth degree, Lord. I'm trying to get one. Lord, help me not be envious of the $250,000 of student loan debt that she's in. Lord, help me. And the sad thing is some of these things happen in church. They happen in church. And then slander comes about, false stories, or insinuating other stuff about other people. I bet you I know something that you don't know. Even if you did, the simple fact that you insinuate means that you're trying to do harm to somebody else. So we have to be careful that we don't fall victim to this stuff. He tells us, Peter says, take that off. Take it off. Take it off like it's dirty, filthy, soiled garments. Why would he tell us to take off those things in particular? Because those sinful behaviors are ones that destroy relationships, which eventually destroys the community. Those tear away of the social fabric of the church and we have to be mindful that we don't fall victim to them. We have to lay aside everything that would destroy the love that he calls us to. We have to put these things off, not just once, but we have to put them off daily. We have to daily be mindful. And so we are already aliens in the world. Why should a brother or sister come in and feel like an alien here? So, our desire is not to destroy one another, but is to love one another. And so, we shouldn't desire that. There's something else we should desire that he gives us insight to in verse 2. Like newborn infants, desire the pure milk of the word so that you grow up into your salvation. If you have tasted that the Lord is good and here, he's comparing us to newborns, not because we're necessarily new converts, but because we've been birthed by God, that that the new birth came from about came from God. And so the way a newborn infant craves its mother's milk is the same way we should crave the pure milk of God's word. We should desire God's word incessantly like we shouldn't be able to get enough of it. We're supposed to be like infants towards God's word. Do you know that generally speaking, a newborn needs to eat every two to three hours? I'm saying it again. Every two to three hours. A newborn needs to eat every two to three hours. We don't desire God's word every two to three months. But he makes this analogy. That that, that this is what they desire and we should have the same response to the word of God, but we don't and so we live in a generation of biblically illiterate people because we don't desire God's word. And so we should see this as not something to condemn us, but it should open our minds and it should encourage us to want to have a desire to read and study and grow in God's word because it's helpful and it's beneficial for us. A mother's milk is not only just something that a baby eats, but it's thought to protect the child against disease. It's thought to set up a healthy digestive system for the child. It's helpful to influence the child's behavior. And do you know that it's maybe the word of God is what will protect us from the diseases that he just mentioned? Maybe we get too sick because we have not been drinking enough milk, and so these diseases find their way to seep through the church. Maybe maybe we don't have a healthy digestive system as believers, and so we eat a bunch of candy on YouTube from sermons that have nothing to do about Jesus, but they're just good advice. But we're so used to eating candy, and our lives don't look different because they didn't lead us to Jesus. They didn't lead us to the cross. They just left us to more behavior modification. And so we don't have a healthy digestive system because we have not been drinking enough of the word on our own. And then it says that the mother's milk influences the child's behavior. Maybe we're crazy sometimes because we're not getting enough milk. And so we are to grow in the word. And So the mother doesn't just birth the baby. The mother's milk sustains the baby. God births us and the milk of the word sustains us. And so God doesn't just initiate our new birth. It sustains our new birth. And so we are dependent upon God to grow in Christ through his word. We have to grow up into our salvation. But some of us have been infants for 10, 15, 20 years in the faith. We go to church but we haven't grown up in our salvation. So this is about changing our desires. This is not just listening to more sermons or reading more scriptures, which which we should do on a regular basis because they are necessary. But we are to desire and crave the Lord himself by the grace of God. We have a desire to want more of him. And so when we get to the word. What the word should do is it should create a desire in us to want more of God. And so I think about this. Um, my, my wife and I, um, we have a favorite place down south that we like to go to. And we went there, and there's a restaurant in Miami that we went to called Joe's Stone Crab. Joe's Stone Crab. If you're ever in Miami, in the right season, <laughs> tell him I sent you. <laughs> and so we went one time, best seafood we ever had in our life. It was amazing. So I was like, I need another fix. I gotta go again. So I was like, so I just need to miss church so we can, what Sunday are we going to miss church to go down to Miami. To, um, so there's some Sunday at some point I wasn't here. I was down, I was eating crabs. Um, so uh, we I don't encourage you to do that. Uh, uh, so we went and it was great the first time. But then went the second time. Because it was so good. We went back because we tasted how good it was. And he says, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's as if if you've tasted it one time, you gotta want him some more. And and so my wife and I went a second time. And it wasn't the same. Oh my goodness, I was so disappointed. We bought a hotel, we did all this stuff just to go get some crabs. (laughs) Rental car, the whole thing, oh my goodness. Off of some crab legs. That's sad. You ever go to a restaurant one time and you go back the second time? It's just not hitting the same. Yeah. It's like what happened? Who's cooking back there? <laughs> it's a different chef. Who's back there today? Who's back there? Who y'all, who's chicken? Who was cooking? <laughs> but he's because you tasted it one time, you went back expecting it to be good again. And what Peter is telling us, God ain't like your bad restaurants. When you've tasted the goodness of the Lord one time, when you go back a second time, it still tastes good. Matter of fact, the more you have it, the better it tastes. But when I think about the goodness of God, it's kind of like Lay's potato chips. Best you can't eat, just one. So if you experience the goodness of God, you'll want more of God. But for whatever reason, we don't have a generation of people that are hungry of God. And I'm starting to think, have we ever even tasted God? Well, I invite you today to taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You may have tasted a lot of stuff in the world, but I'm telling you, nothing tastes better than when you've been in God's presence, spending time with him in his presence, his fullness of joy. He invites us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And we should all want to taste his goodness, because once you've tasted his goodness, you will want more of it. And as I close, I said this in the last service and I'll say it again. God is not a subject to be studied, but a banquet to be enjoyed. And so today, through a relationship with Jesus, I don't know what else you've tasted. I don't know what high you're chasing that you tried to get you couldn't get it again. But I'm telling you, there's nothing like being in a relationship with Jesus. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not talking about warm and fuzzy feelings. I'm talking about knowing he's, in, he's good even when things are bad. Yeah. That, that nothing can disrupt the goodness of God once you've tasted him. And today he invites all of us to drink and eat of his goodness. And the reason why we can eat of the goodness of God is because of what he's done for us through the death of his son. When he was raised to life, it meant several things that we were forgiven. meant that we as believers have new life. But I don't know in the old life what your appetite was. But when you've been born of God, it gives you a new appetite. And what used to taste good doesn't taste good anymore. You ever have that happen to you? Once you got with Jesus, you were like, I don't know how that could have ever tasted good to me. I don't know how I would have, how did I sit through that? but now that you're in him, you have a new appetite. Old stuff tastes nasty. And sometimes you try to go and taste it again. <laughs> and every time you leave disappointed. <laughs> so why didn't even bother? But this taste, it gets better every time. Joe's Stone crab <laughs> is seasonal. <sighs> so even if it's good, you got to wait. Something to do with the crabs in the water, whatever. <laughs> Just give me the crabs, man. <laughs> but God is always in season, He's always got a full supply, of whatever you need. I ain't talking about stuff. I'm talking about God. Yeah. It's not the things. It's God himself. And when you have him, the things don't really matter that much. They ain't that important. So this is an invitation. It's the taste the Lord. But you know what the best thing is about a good meal? The best, no. The best... <laughs> God is dessert too. The best meals are ones you share with the people you love. God didn't call you to eat by yourself. He saved you to feast with your brothers and sisters. Can we taste and see that the Lord is good?